The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Great lungs. Worthy Cordor. Greater than both by the all hail hereafter. Thy letters have transported me beyond this ignorant present. And I feel now the future in the instant. My dearest love. Duncan comes here tonight. And when goes hence? Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see. Your face, my fame, is as a book where men may read strange matters. To beguile the time, look like the time. Bear welcome in your hand, your eye, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which are to all our nights and days to come, give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. We will speak further. Only look up clear to alter favor ever is to fear. Leave all the rest to me. Mm. That's Dame Judi Dench from her unforgettable 1979 portrayal of Lady Macbeth. That's where she and her husband are plotting to kill a king. We are in the world of ghosts and witches and spells and mysterious knocks. And prophecy, and there's more knocks. And prophecies that turn into curses, and ambition gone mad, and insufferable guilt, and murder, and more murder, and more murder. It's our Halloween episode of the History of Literature, and we're taking a look at one of the bloodiest and most breathtaking plays ever written. Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Today, on the History of of literature. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fourth and final show of October, my favorite month of the year. This is always a little sad for me. I love October so much. I'm sad to see it go. But we can make it through, can't we? Especially when we have great literature to talk about and share. Like today's show, Macbeth, the Scottish play. The most superstitious play in the world of the theater, I suspect. There are so many tales that have grown up around this play that actors tend not to pronounce the title. They call Macbeth the Thane and call Lady Macbeth the Queen and the play itself the Scottish play. It's been full of bad luck, story after story of theaters catching fire, or scenery falling during the performance, or actual murders on the stage. <laughs> Forgive me, we get a little carried away here at the History of Literature podcast around Halloween time. It's why I'm sitting here in my costume, alone, scaring myself. Is that a little creepy? Maybe I'm scaring you too. Hmm. The knock. 
knocking, the knocking. There's knocking in Macbeth. That's the part that always gets me. The witches, the ghost, none of that is actually that scary. When I watch the play, it reminds me of a Dr. Seuss book that I used to read to my son when he was about two. There's a locket in my pocket. It shows all these little Seussian monsters in different locations around the house, hiding in clothes and so on. A locket in my pocket. It's a little green guy with orange hair riding along in the boy's back pocket. That's on the cover. And inside, there's a bofa on the sofa. It's one of those tall, furry, yellow creatures with a white, bushy mustache and a hair like a corn cornstalk and a white, fuzzy collar. My son wasn't scared of these monsters, and who would be? They're harmless, right? They look like stuffed animals, just sitting around doing nothing. The bofa on the sofa is reading a book, smiling. It's all cute. Until I turn to a page where the boy is in the dark, everything in the room is blue. He's tiptoeing around the edge of the room. The caption says, There's a vug under the rug, and in the middle of the floor is a carpet with a bulge at one corner, and my son's eyes grew huge, and he slapped his hand down on the book and turned the page, terrified. My first thought was, wait, this one? There are no fangs, there are no shifty eyes, there's nothing here, it's just a rug with a bump. But of course, it made perfect sense. His imagination could supply the scariness. But I think it was more than that. I think it was more than just the power of his imagination. I don't think he was necessarily picturing anything horrible in particular. I think the unknown was enough. Mm, that scream. That's how the knock is for me. Seeing the ghost... Well, my mind can deal with that. Seeing the witches, well, those are almost like old friends at this point. Seeing the floating dagger, well, that's Macbeth's imagination, most likely. Seeing Lady Macbeth lose her grip on sanity, that's a little bit different. When you're watching Judy Dench, I feel like I'm losing my own grip on my humanity, like she's taking me somewhere very dark indeed. She's like a magician, practicing the dark arts of intense acting where she becomes the emotion she's conveying. She is truly incredible as Lady Macbeth, and her partner in that play was Ian McKellen, who's frighteningly good at Macbeth, and they're young and at the height of their youthful powers. My God, it's amazing. I'll play a few snippets for you here, but do check it out when you get the chance. So no, the ghost and the witches and the floating dagger, even the severed head don't quite scare me the way the knock does. And the knock gets me every time. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to hear the knock. Macbeth hears it right after he's killed Duncan, the king that he's killed out of a twisted sense of ambition. Macbeth's hands are bloody. He's in shock. He's terrified. He forgot to smear blood on Duncan's bodyguards, which was going to be the alibi, the framing of them. It's dark. Macbeth and his wife are in Macbeth's castle. His wife is a fiend like he is, and suddenly there's a knock. Who's knocking? I know just what that's like. You're in a fragile state, and suddenly the knock comes loud, menacing. Something is at the door. Someone or something is closing in. 
Who's there? Why? Why now? Macbeth is about closing in. It's about the the mind being a kind of prison with guilt and retribution moving forward like the walls of a trash compactor. Two sets of prophecies get us going, one at the beginning, one halfway through, and the second set seems like a reprieve. But as the apparent relief falls away, the fate represented by those weird sisters and their pronouncements becomes inevitable. And the march through their prophecies, overturned one after the other, becomes inexorable. The offstage figures are moving in. It feels like losing a chess game where you lose pieces early and the meager pieces you have left run but can't hide and the opponent starts boxing you in. You regret that you don't have more options. If only you still had your bishops. If only you had a few more pawns. If only you had more options, more choices, more power. And you're overwhelmed by that feeling that you can never win. You might see a ray of hope here and there. You might turn over the board and run from the room fleeing, but you know your options are bad and getting worse. You feel your opponent playing his pieces like God putting your fate before the world for all to see, boxing you in, making you suffer in the vice of your destiny as it clamps down. And it feels unfair, but you know you have no one to blame but yourself. Back to the performances. One Lady Macbeth, not Judy Dench, but some other devoted actress, some other poor soul, thought her sleepwalking scene would be better with her eyes closed. She walked straight off the stage and fell into the orchestra pit, seriously injuring herself. That's the kind of bad luck we're talking about. <laughs> By the way, sleepwalking is scarier with open eyes, at least in my experience. It's haunting to see someone doing it. I was at my sister-in-law's house, and we were watching a movie. The kid's finally asleep, the house finally quiet, and suddenly in the doorway stood my niece, staring at us with uncanny eyes. Her father jumped up. Go upstairs! Go upstairs! He pointed like you'd point at a pet. She turned around and crash-walked her way back upstairs with her father following to make sure she got back to bed. She had been sleepwalking. The look on her face as she regarded us, the animal instinct that had made her come down the stairs to find us, and the way she stared at us like she couldn't comprehend us. Sort of a, I'm here, I'm here. It haunts me to this day. Her eyes were open, staring at us. The witches aren't called witches in the play, only once in passing. They're called weird sisters. The weird sisters. There's an old English word, W-Y-R-D, weird, which is the old English word for fate. That's what they represent for our hero, if we call him a hero. The image of his fate, the foretellers, maybe the manipulators, maybe malevolent, definitely supernatural, at least in his eyes, uncanny, weird, strange, doing strange things. This was a time of witches when this play was written, not just generally, but very specifically. Macbeth was first performed in 1606. 
Elizabeth was no longer the queen. James had succeeded her in 1603. He was the king then of both England and Scotland. He was from Scotland, actually, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. We'll talk more about her later. As part of James's assumption of the role of king, he took over as the protector of Shakespeare's theater company, which was renamed The King's Men. Macbeth was performed for James and may have been written at his request. James was an ardent devotee of witches and witchcraft. He had even written a book called Demonology that was all about witches. It slid right into the bookshelf along with other accounts of witches and witch hunting and other books saying that witch hunters were frauds and witches did not exist. The topic was in the air. The air was both both foul and fair, as we shall see in our play. Here's what was believed about witches. There were three kinds, English, Scottish, and Continental. The Continental witches were the baddies. They had sex with demons and were cannibals and murdered infants. They could fly. Scottish and English witches were less powerful. They were more likely to make predictions or to dish out fate, both of which we see in Macbeth. Call them light pagans. The witches in Macbeth get lectured by their boss at one point. They're sort of the mid-level managers of the witch world. What happened to the continental witches? Why didn't Shakespeare use them? Why not draw upon those fabulous crimes? Well, he sort of did. He just projected them onto Lady Macbeth, our arch-villain. Ah, excuse me, there's someone at the door. This one... Ooh. This one comes with some weather. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. Oh my goodness. I'm here to ask you, now, now stop. Sorry, that's my dog, Spot. His favorite dog walker hasn't shown up yet. Oh. And he's refusing to out. Out, you damn Spot. He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favorite dog walker. What happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. I can't remember why. Something about a dagger. Anyway, our desperate and sweaty minion, Jack Wilson, is Mm. going to procure a new dog walker. But he... Spot! If you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. Ahem. Won't you help Mr. Wilson secure a few funds? Spot and I shall be ever so grateful. Hmm. What a nice surprise. Lady Macbeth, how wonderful. To hear from the fiendish murderer herself, a bit eroticized in many versions of the play. Here we go. Poor Spot. If you would like to help support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small monthly contribution. We very much appreciate it. This week, we're welcoming into the Patreon family Stephen, Felix, Brian, B-R-Y-O-N, and Mick. Thank you, gentlemen for helping to defray our costs, and for supporting the cause of literature. So where were we? King James. He was no stranger to intrigue. His mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had been executed in 1587 for her supposed complicity in the plot to assassinate Queen Elizabeth. James protested, but not too loudly. He was the heir now, after all. We see this character trait all through the males in Macbeth, and we see their interconnection with women, mothers, wives, sometimes ambitious killers, 
sometimes innocent victims. Double, double toil and trouble, as the witches famously say. There's lots of doubling here in this play, including Macbeth divided against himself. This is not a play of inaction, a la Hamlet, but of the contradictions inherent to ambition. A warrior on the battlefield is noble, a warrior in life, in the throes of a lust for power, is a monstrous tyrant. Ambition needs a proper channel, a proper outlet. In war, for service to one's king, fine. In peace, in an attempt to usurp a king, not fine. Hollinshead, the great historian that Shakespeare relied upon for his English history plays, doesn't portray Macbeth like this. Shakespeare seems to have reversed the characters in some sense. In Hollinshead, Duncan is a weak and ineffective king. Shakespeare turns him into a saintly figure. In Hollinshead, Macbeth is not a usurping villain. He's fair-minded and rules for ten years. Speaking of which, I went to Macbeth's castle. It was not what I expected. It was not spooky and haunted. It was pretty bright, all things considered. The air was not foul, but good. It has a beautiful garden. My family and I toured the castle and garden and ate a nice picnic on some benches near the parking lot as the cool Scottish air and a light sprinkling of rain refreshed us. Then I got into our rental car, burned the clutch to within an inch of its life, and we were off. There's a helpful sign as you leave the parking lot, reminding foreigners like myself to drive on the left side of the road. There are so many interesting things to track in this play. The use of blood, for example, the use of water, the descriptions of mother's milk, the air itself, the countless references to manliness and manhood and manning up and being unmanned and being a man. You could write a million essays about Macbeth just based on the language and imagery alone. As Macbeth shrinks in nature... His clothes don't seem to fit him. What an interesting message for Shakespeare to send to a king in the audience. It says, you're human. We know you're human. You have a body. Your clothes may or may not fit. And your character will make it all transparent. Your character will transform your body itself. And we will see it. We'll see the differences in you. Yes, we're your subjects. And yes, we'll be loyal. But... Our perception of you and your character has the power to disfigure you. You might try to control your image, but that's not entirely up to you. Other forces will come to bear on this. You might be a respected leader sitting high above us, riding high on our goodwill and our support, or you might be a ruler who lacks our support, who deserves our anger, who shrinks within his very clothes, and who winds up chased by the righteous mob and decapitated in a surge of justice. There are so many beautiful touches in this play, and when Shakespeare is at his best, as he is here, the language is not beautiful for its own sake, but works to advance the plot, define the setting, and represent the psychology of the characters perfectly. Here's a simple line, just to give you an example. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are hosting King Duncan. They plot to kill him, to fulfill the prophecy, the prophecy has made them mad with ambition, or maybe has revealed their mad ambition. But they know they have to be above suspicion. They have to feign horror at the news. 
So the message is delivered. Duncan is dead, and Lady Macbeth, feigning horror, says, What? In our house? It's so perfect. Her psychology at that moment. She's trying to act innocent, but her words betray her in this extremely subtle way. She's already one step ahead of the accusations. This happened in your house. Maybe you had something to do with it. That's what she's anticipating people will believe. Imagine if you were planning to blow up an airplane. So you put a bomb in your carry-on bag. You figure out a way to make it look like a box of candy. And you tell yourself, well, if they find it, I'll have to act like someone else put the bomb in my suitcase. They will naturally suspect me that it was my bomb because it's in my suitcase. So you develop this idea. The taxi driver was helping you with your bag. He must have put it there. And then the moment arrives. You're stopped by security. The guards open your bag and they say, Would you mind explaining how this bomb got here? Now, if you're innocent, you you might say, A bomb? What? A bomb? What bomb? What are you talking about? That's what you'd say if you were innocent, right? A bomb? You're joking. A bomb? Are you sure that's a bomb? Oh my God, a bomb? If you're guilty but planning to feign outrage, you might slip up and say, What? In my suitcase? (laughs) Like, everyone else has a bomb? That's perfectly normal. Right? You just didn't think it would be your suitcase. Must have been the taxi driver. You're already one step ahead of them, of your accusers. You're already thinking through the appearance of the crime and how you need to address the appearance of this bomb, or in Lady Macbeth's case, the murder of a king, because she's already been thinking about how hard this will be to explain away. There's no need for shock, because she's not shocked. That's the subtlety of Lady Macbeth's response. The king is dead, murdered, covered with blood. What? Dead? My God, really? Are you sure? The king? Oh my God. But how? That's not her response. Her response is, what? In our house? (laughs) This is why Shakespeare is so good. He gets so much credit for the grand speeches because the language is so beautiful. He rises to the occasion time after time. But there are these beautiful little moments, the subtle ones, that are just as good. They give actors something interesting to work with, the perfect raw material for them to slide right into and turn into something surprising but perfectly recognizable. The king is dead. What? In our house? It's very subtle. But Shakespeare can be subtle, even when he's dealing with the most unsubtle of topics. Like regicide. His knowledge of psychology is so acute. He's probably the greatest novelist the world has ever seen. It's just too bad he never wrote a novel. Here's another nice touch, right at the same time. Macbeth's response to the news of the king being dead is good in a whole different way. He says, Here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood. What kind of description is that? If you went into the shocking scene of a murdered king, and you contemplated it all, and it was an actual shock to you, and not one that you yourself caused, wouldn't you come out stumbling and say, my God, the king, he he was all bloody, his throat was gashed, his eyes were staring up at me, he's dead. Oh my God, our poor king is dead. Not Macbeth. 
He says, Here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood. This is his description of the king whom he has murdered. Silver skin laced with golden blood? Sounds like a painter admiring an artwork. Lady Macbeth has foreshadowed this comment. Earlier she said, I'll gild the faces of the grooms withal, for it must seem their guilt. That's what she says before she takes the daggers from Macbeth and goes back into the murder scene. She's not going to smear the faces of the bodyguards she's planning to frame. She's going to gild their faces, which will lead to their guilt. Gild and guilt, the kind of resonating words that Shakespeare sets down as gently as two birds landing together on a windowsill. Look at how those two words complement one another. Guilt, G-U-I-L-T, is what she's after. And gild, G-I-L-D, the past tense, gilded, or in fact, guilt. They're homonyms or near homonyms, and they're not ordinarily paired, but they're perfectly paired here. Guilt with a U is internal, the feeling of shame. Guild with an I, the gilding is external, to cover something thinly with gold, or to give a specious or false brilliance to something. The bodyguards will be guilt with blood in order to appear to to the world as if they have guilt. External and internal, fused together with one homonym. And a few minutes later, Macbeth completes it, the golden blood of a king which is now on their faces, like the gilding we've heard about. I don't think Shakespeare agonized over this. He just dropped it in, writing like lightning. And we just race past it, not even noticing, especially during a performance. And yet it hits us like the chiming of a bell, even if we don't know why. And we are on to the next beautiful phrase, and we're not even noticing that language either because the story is so fast-paced. It's like the fast notes of a beautiful artist at the piano, or a composer like Mozart, the overall effect being achieved as the product of a million tiny decisions. Shakespeare is truly touched by the gods of writing, flowing through his mind and hand and pen. And when we go deep, Taking our time, we're rewarded again and again with the kind of intellectual pleasure of seeing how these words work and how the great mind of Shakespeare wheeled them all into place for us, even as he had so many other things going on. This is literature with a capital L, people. Literature we are lucky to have. So here's what we'll do. We'll start by building our own tragedy and see what kind of shape we can give it, and then we'll go through Macbeth and marvel at what Dr. Johnson called Shakespeare's touches of judgment and genius. We won't get to all of them, but we'll do as much exploring and celebrating as we can. And we'll finish our October with a bang, or maybe a knock. Maybe a knock. Silences can be frightening, too. In any case, we'll have all that after this. This is taken from Macbeth, the opera composed by Giuseppe Verdi.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let's build ourselves a play. Not just an average play, but a play for all time. What should we do? What should we make it? A comedy? There's merit in comedies. The world could use more laughter. Comedy has a few problems, though. One is that humor doesn't always age well, and it's not predictable how it will age. We don't know what language will do, what twists and turns it will take, so any word play might seem clever now, but incomprehensible in the future. And characters, well, who knows what will seem funny in the future with humans. We don't know what humans will be like. So let's stick to drama. And since we're going with drama, let's just make it a tragedy. The old tried-and-true genre, the one with the pedigree. We can go all the way back to Aristotle to see the theories behind tragedies. People might say they like happy endings, but they are going to respond to tragedy. We know they will. We can shock them and horrify them and provide them with catharsis. And at the end of it all, if we've done our job well, they'll leave the theater having seen something they can't stop thinking about. We are on our way. Genre? Check. Tragedy. How about a theme? What themes lend themselves to tragedy? We need to have a death at the end. An accident of some kind? Well, that's not so good, is it? We don't have a motive if the death is accidental or arbitrary. It may be a tragedy, but what point do we make? That the world is full of death? That the world is unfair or arbitrary? Not really an interesting idea. Aristotle suggests we need some kind of hero, and the hero needs to have a flaw that leads to the tragic event. Some random accident isn't really going to do it. How about romance? Love? Maybe. Maybe jealousy? Even better. But let's say we've done that already. What about ambition? That's good, right? Greed would work too. Ambition I like even better. Greed is not very complicated, but ambition is complicated. As we've already discussed, and as I'll explain a little further in just a little bit. But first, what kind of ambition? To what purpose? Well, we could be modern and say, hey, let's 
make this a slice of life. Let's say someone is really ambitious about the corner office. So he or she murders the man who's currently ahead of him or her on the corporate ladder. But that seems a little too flawed, doesn't it? The stakes are not really commensurate with a murder. Sounds like a farce. How about a promotion? Not just a corner office. Let's say you're in line to be the CEO of a huge company and there's a young up-and-comer who's standing in your way. That's a little better. Or maybe you're on your way to being a senator and there's someone with a secret, someone who could bring you down. You had an affair. And this person is threatening to expose you. So you have him or her bumped off or you do it yourself. That's better. Maybe you're in line to be vice president or president. This is all kind of plausible, right? Candidates who would kill for a job like that, for all that power. And if we're raising the stakes, why not go all the way to the top? Not just a a CEO, unless you think a CEO is more powerful than a president, which might actually be true in certain cases. But let's be safe and say we're talking about the power one wields over a whole nation. The ruler, supreme power, dominion over others. Wealth, fame, glory, it's all there. And in fact, let's set aside presidents for now because they are term-limited. Or at least that's how it's supposed to work. You only get four years, maybe eight. You need to face the electorate to get your second four. But we want to make this power for life, right? Raise the stakes as much as we can. Now, here's a twist. Do we make our tragic hero, our font of ambition, a man or a woman? And do we make them a solo actor or someone who works with others? If solo, it's a little less interesting, especially on the stage. There's no one to talk to. If your flaws indecision, as we've already written a play about that too, by the way, <laughs> it's called Hamlet, then yes, maybe a solo actor is best. But if it's ambition, if our theme is ambition, maybe we need a pair so they can goad each other on. How about a husband and wife duo? Wouldn't they share each other's ambition? Share the fruits of the results? They'll both share the power. And when one gets cold feet, the other can be there to stay strong. Now they have one another to contend with as well. They have to prove themselves to one another. So, should we make the man the ambitious one, striving to be king? Or should it be the woman? Seizing power as queen, boosted forward by the man at her side. Both of those could work. Both could be interesting. Especially if we're trafficking in traditional gender roles and stereotypes. If the man is wavering, the woman can attack him for being unmanly. But an ambitious woman, she has to be even more manly, doesn't she? Margaret Thatcher has to prove she's the Iron Lady, can handle war, can be the commander-in-chief. The husband can be right by her side, whispering in her ear, reminding her that if she truly wants to be queen, well, she's going to need to do what it takes. If you want to eat the omelet, my dear, you have to break a few eggs. So that could work too. Having the woman as the hero, the tragic hero. But I'm going to insert an obstacle here and say... That we're living in a world where there's a king and it might not be good to make this a contemporary situation. 
So we have to set this in the past to be safe. And since we're in the past, let's go with historic gender roles. The man wants to be king. The woman at his side is just as ambitious. We're in the past, so let's make it dim. This isn't Miami. This isn't Brazil. This is about a kingdom set somewhere in the past, so let's use the tools we have that will set the mood on stage. Let's fill it with candles and torches. Let's set it in a world of dim light and early sunsets and powerful winds and storms. Let's make it as spooky as possible. Scotland will do. Let's talk about some characters we need. We need the killer, the man who wants to be king, and his consort, who's there to support him in some way. And we need the victim. We want them all to be complex, don't we? These three? Well, maybe not the victim. If the victim is evil, if the victim is a tyrant, then it's not just ambition we're talking about, it's justice. The killing would be justified. Our protagonist isn't flawed now, overwhelmed by ambition. He's the bringer of justice. That's a different kind of story altogether. It might be satisfying, but it's not a tragedy. But if the king is sweet, innocent, good to his people, wise, benevolent, now we see the problem. Killing such a leader defies judgment, defies nature, is sinful, abhorrent. Who would do such a thing? Someone in the grip of ambition. That's good. I mean, it's horrible, but it's good for the mechanics of our play. So look at what we have so far. We're writing a tragedy. We have a man, a woman at his side, and a good, innocent victim. What should we do with our killer? Can we make him complex? Well... Who's going to succeed a king? Maybe someone who's second in line? A brother of the king? That could work. But how about this? How about a soldier? A celebrated soldier? A brave hero on the battlefield? Someone who has risked his life in service of the king? Think about what this gives us. First, we know he's a killer. He's done it. He's good at it. He's been praised for it by the very person he wants to kill. He also has some justification for his killing, there's a long history of the battlefield victor being deserving of being a king. We shrink from the notion now. We like the selfless soldier who acts within the chain of command, who carries out his duties. We don't like the idea that the president is just the strongest, but strong men and killers have traditionally been rewarded with power. It's kind of the nature of the beast from the Epic of Gilgamesh through the modern mafia. Strength begets power. It's not unreasonable for a soldier who's risked his life, who's encountered danger, who's sacrificed to not just humbly accept his little prize from the king. He might want more. And he might think, with some justification, that he's earned more. And the king has to be careful here, too. He's set all this in motion, right? He's benefited from the strength and violence of the killer. This is better than a succession story with a second in line hoping to kill the first, right? That's ambition that doesn't know its place. That's impatience. That's greed and selfishness. But here, we have a complicated relationship with the ambitious soldier because the ambition itself is complicated. Ambition during war, striving for glory on the battlefield, killing the obstacles in your way, all that is selfless and patriotic and loyal and noble. A very interesting use of the word noble, by the way. It's a bunch of good things, is the point. Ambition during peacetime, 
taking out obstacles with your killing ability. It's the same basic skill, right? But now it's frowned upon. It's ruthless, murderous, an atrocity, an affront to all we know of good and evil. It's out of place now. It's uncivilized. It's regicide. The same conduct. Now it's bad. That's interesting. That makes us think. We are on our way now, people. This play is shaping up. I have high hopes. Let's think through our plot. Our big event, at least one of them, will be the killing of the king. When should we do that? Maybe at the very end? The very last scene? Everything could build and build and build until we get to that point. And then the murder. The king is finally dead. Curtain. But that won't quite work, will it? Because we want to know what will happen. Will our hero happily succeed him on the throne? But how can it be that a murderer kills a king in cold blood, a good king, someone everyone loves, and gets away clean? Isn't that part of the story, whether he gets away clean? And what about his conscience? What about his conscience? What about his co-conspirators? They might have a conscience. Or they might get greedy themselves. This is the crime and punishment trick, which, of course, Dostoevsky probably got from Shakespeare. Unlike Tolstoy, Dostoevsky loved Shakespeare. Raskolnikov doesn't kill the old woman at the end. He kills her at the beginning, or near the beginning. You don't start the play with the assassination. You don't end it with the assassination either. That might work for a fairy tale where you gloss things over with a happily ever after. In a fairy tale, the outcomes are external. A death, a marriage, an imprisonment, a succession to the throne, and the reader or listener supplies the internal. Happily ever after? Oh good, I'll think about whether that particular prince or princess might have a complicated inner life. Or I won't. Maybe I'll just close my eyes and go to sleep, dreaming of their happiness. Tragedy doesn't work like that, doesn't work like a fairy tale. Tragedy, if it's any good, forces you to reckon with the most difficult part of the inner conflict, the rocky terrain that accompanies things like insane jealousy or uncontrolled rage, or in this case, wild and misplaced ambition. We can't have our regicide at the very end because we won't see Macbeth's fall. And we can't have it at the very beginning, say in the first scene or even before the play begins, because... We won't care, or not as much. We'll put it near the beginning, the first third or so. This is our perfect screenplay, right? That's what we've learned about screenplays, divide them into thirds. As an aside, I took a look at Macbeth to make sure it happened around the first third as I thought it would. There are 28 scenes in Macbeth, so you'd expect the murder to happen in the ninth scene or so, right? If we're following the perfect screenplay rules... Have a big event happen one-third of the way through. Well, one-third of 28 is about nine. And there we go. Act two, scene two. The ninth scene of the play. The king is dead. You see where this is all headed, right? We're writing a perfect play, a perfect tragedy, and we're coming to what seems like logical conclusions, decisions we can make, but what we're really doing is just retracing the steps that Shakespeare took when he composed Macbeth. We could go on to talk about motive and pace and the climax and the outcome, and I could give you reasons for all of those things, looking at the play inside out, reverse engineering it, so to speak, but let's switch gears instead, because there's so much about Macbeth that's wonderful. 
I want to be able to dip into the play itself rather than talk about it hypothetically like this. I'll do one more of those. The witches and their power to motivate Macbeth. If we were writing our perfect tragedy, we might wonder what inspires our killer to act now. Yes, he's ambitious. Yes, he has a wife who's even more solid and steadfast in her ambition. At least she is before the murder happens. But why did these two not want to murder the king before? What brings it about now? What are the answers to this? Well, we might just leave the question alone altogether. Just have him appear on the stage, evil without cause, like Iago, a force of nature. He's ambitious, he's evil, no further explanation required. Why now? Because he's here and because he wants to. Why now? Because we're looking at him at this particular moment. That's eerie and it's creepy and it makes a good villain. It's the Terminator. He just keeps coming and coming, and we don't know what gave rise to this particular murder or that particular murder. It's just what he does. Or we could say there's a new sliver of opportunity. Maybe the king fired his bodyguards. Maybe the king is weak or vulnerable. But still, why now? The most common way to justify things like this, I think, is to show that the king has wronged someone. The king has turned on the people. The king has started an unpopular war. The king must go. This is Julius Caesar. But then we face our problem. Our villain is turned into a crusader, an avenger, someone on the side of the angels. We don't want that because we want his flaw to cause his death. We don't want to weep over the poor dead hero who acted selflessly. We want his flaws to become the thing that lifts him up and then takes him down. What if the king snubbed the hero? What if he passed him over, gave away his land, offended his honor? Well, once again, we might think the murder is justified. We might also think the motive is too petty. You killed the king because he insulted you? That doesn't sound like ambition. It sounds like an excessive sense of honor, misplaced pride, peacockism, which is a different kind of thing altogether. Look at what Shakespeare does. Shakespeare gives us the witches, the weird sisters. They're complex, by the way. Speaking of masculinity, they have beards. It's not clear if they're male or female exactly. They're like a hybrid of both somehow. All the qualities mixed together like their witchy soup. Shakespeare gives us the witches who tell Macbeth that he's going to be king. As far as I know, Shakespeare completely made this up. I don't think this is in any of his source materials, something gave Shakespeare the idea that Macbeth should hear that he's going to be king and then decide to murder the king. If you know of the source for this, let me know, because as a structural device, it has a transformative effect on the plot and the character of Macbeth. Look at what it does. First of all, why would anyone believe these three hags? You get a couple of things right, that's true enough, but even so, why does Macbeth believe them? Wouldn't you chalk it up to superstition, to folklore, to a kind of oddity? If you get a fortune cookie that tells you you're going to be a great leader, even a king, would you run out and commit murder? This tells us that Macbeth has this ambition in him. It's so powerful, it clouds his judgment. Only a crazily ambitious soldier would listen to three weird hags in the forest 
and act upon their pronouncements. But there's another point. The witches tell Macbeth it's his destiny, that he's fated to become king. They don't mention his courage or strength or murder. If it's your fate to become king, why do you need to do anything? Wouldn't it happen anyway? So sit back, relax, be a good person. Let the reward come to you. Well, Macbeth can't wait. Neither can his wife. And we see what kind of people they are. We see how insane their ambition is. How much it governs the two of them. They can't wait. They can't just let it happen. They catch a whiff of it in the air. They have to follow the savory smell all the way to the feast and devour it. All of it, like maniacs. That's who they are. Well, we know who we are, don't we? We're journeying through the history of literature. And we've encountered one of the greatest plays ever written. Let's take our last quick break and come back with our march through this natural wonder. And I'll stop to point out some details for us to gawk at. That's after this. one of Shakespeare's shortest, and by far the shortest, of his major tragedies. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays, and the average Shakespeare play has about 22,000 words. Hamlet is Shakespeare's longest play, over 30,000 words. Othello and King Lear have about 26,000, which puts them at fifth and sixth on the list. Three of the four major tragedies, and they come in at number one, number five, and number six, ranked by number of words. Long plays. It's as if Shakespeare is taking his time with these tragedies. He knows they're momentous and important, and he lingers here and there. There's some digressions in there, some subplots, some lengthy speeches. It's not uncommon for directors to cut out a few words, to trim them a bit, to tamper with the bard, to keep things moving. You don't need to trim much in Macbeth. It only has 17,000 words to begin with. Barely half of Hamlet. That's 34th on the list, the fourth shortest play that Shakespeare wrote. This play, this tragedy, moves. We start with a quick introduction to the witches, letting us know up front that there are some supernatural elements in this thing. We spend only a few short minutes with them, long enough to hear about their interest in a battlefield and a soldier named Macbeth. The second scene introduces the king, Duncan, and we hear how Macbeth and his fellow soldier Banquo have performed in the latest battle. They are heroes. King Duncan is pleased and grateful. In the third scene, the witches appear before Macbeth and Banquo. Notice how Banquo sees them too, which is important. 
tells us that Macbeth's not totally crazy. He might make too much of the witches. He might go crazy based on what they tell him. But these aren't visions. These aren't internal. Banquo sees them too. Banquo's a witness. The witches announce the first set of prophecies. Macbeth will become the thane or leader of Glamis and Cawdor, and he'll be the future king. Banquo, meanwhile, is what they say lesser than Macbeth and greater. Not as happy as Macbeth and happier. And finally, that he will not be king, but his descendants will be. Should Macbeth have been alone? No. Look at what this does. Macbeth will be king, but he has a witness, Banquo, to the prophecy. Banquo's descendants will be king, and Banquo knows this, and Macbeth knows this, and Macbeth knows that Banquo knows, and Banquo knows that Macbeth knows, and on and on. If by some miracle Macbeth becomes king, he must be afraid of Banquo's descendants. And Banquo knows that Macbeth will be afraid, and that his descendants are in jeopardy, and he will be too, since he could always produce more descendants. In other words, without even really getting the details, we see the seedlings for a future conflict right up front. We see excitement too. At this point, we like Macbeth. He's a great hero, a soldier. He's done nothing wrong. He might be king. Hooray. But in the middle of that potentially exciting news, we have the conflict. If he is king... And he's going to be threatened by Banquo and Banquo's descendants, who will be a threat to him. And if he kills to become king, then why would he not fear that Banquo or Banquo's descendants might kill him? Here's how fast the play moves. As soon as the prophecy is over, in the same scene, Macbeth learns that he's been named the Thane of Glamis and Cawdor. Confirmed and confirmed. Two out of three. Like magic like spooky magic, the witch's words are coming true. Glamis was kind of expected because the current Thane died, but Cawdor is completely unexpected. The Thane of Cawdor is alive. Ah, it turns out we hear from some of the king's messengers, the Thane of Cawdor was a traitor, committed treason. So the king has stripped him of his title and he's going to be executed for that treason. In gratitude, the king names Macbeth the new Thane of Cawdor. Think what this must be like for Macbeth and Banquo. Just minutes before the weird sisters announced this, that this would happen before melting into the air like breath into wind, we are told. And now, here we are, minutes later, if not seconds, and the prophecy has come true like a miracle. So why not think the third one will come true as well? Macbeth will be king. And Macbeth tries to think this through, but his brain is addled by ambition. This is how he reasons it out. Are these prophecies good things or bad things? And he thinks, well, they can't be bad because they came true. And he's a thane of Cawdor, which is a good thing. On the other hand, if the prophecies are good, then why is he thinking about murdering his king? Which makes his hair stand on end. As I said, it's completely confused. It's not logical at all how he's trying to reason this through. Why couldn't he accept two prophecies but scoff at the third? Why does he think he has to create his own destiny at all? Why does he have to think about killing the king? Why not wait? And our attention as an audience turns to the king. Do we want this king killed? Who are we rooting for here, Macbeth? We know the play's called after him. 
titled after him. We learn in the next couple of scenes that King Duncan is a great king, wise, benevolent, respected, a great ruler. It would be a loss to the nation if he were killed. And he's full of gratitude for Macbeth. He praises him to the skies. There's no question that Macbeth will do just fine in a Duncan regime. He's not oppressed or anything, but Macbeth is sitting on this prophecy, this time bomb, and the time bomb that is Banquo, who knows Macbeth has heard this prophecy. And so what does he do? He tells his wife. He tells his wife, writes her a letter. The king's coming for a visit. And hey, guess what? There are some witches out there making prophecies, and they're coming true. And one of them is that I'm going to be king. That's his letter. She reads the letter and immediately, it's astonishing. She does not hesitate. She reads the letter and says, okay, great. My husband's the Thane of Glamis and Cawdor now, and so he will be king too. The problem, I see it, as soon as Macbeth shows up. The problem, I see it, she says, is that you might get weak and not make it happen. You're ambitious to some extent, but you're too nice. <laughs> the lines here are, we heard these at the beginning, actually. Glamis thou art, and Cawdor, and shall be what thou art promised. Notice that shall be, not could be, or maybe will be, shall be. You shall be king. And it's already a promise. She acts like he's been promised something official by some official source, as if it were announced by Duncan himself rather than three weird sisters in the gloomy forest. Glamis thou art, and Cawdor, and shall be what thou art promised. Yet do I fear thy nature, she says. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. That's her fear. She's married to a nice man who isn't capable of murdering his king in cold blood for no better reason than three weirdos in a forest said someday he himself will be king. The milk of human kindness, she says. Your nature's too full of it. Milk and breastfeeding and suckling infants are a trope that run throughout the play. Shakespeare poses motherhood and the maternal instinct as being the sort of pure good against which the evil of unjustifiable homicide is pitted. What's the opposite of murdering a king? Or we might say murdering a parent, nurturing a baby. It's as elemental as it gets. We can put in the gender roles that Shakespeare uses. What's the opposite of a man murdering his father? A woman taking care of a baby. Lady Macduff is shown in just this kind of scene, a woman with her boy, joking with him, taking care of him, being maternal. It's a contrast to Lady Macbeth, who, on the other hand, is a woman trying very hard not to be a woman. Again, this is using Shakespeare's definitions of gender and gender roles. Later in that scene, after she's chastised Macbeth for being too full of the milk of human kindness, she goes into a kind of wailing lament that she needs help in being less of a woman, less motherly. She needs to extinguish all that from her being 
so that she can be ruthless in a manly way, the way that's called for. Unsex me here, she cries. Unsex. What a great word. How perfect. It's like she's asking for something physical. But she means this metaphorically. Means make me less of a woman. Shakespeare invented the word, unsex, of course. He needed a perfect word, and he knew what it was. It just hadn't been used before. So he had to invent it and put it into his play. Unsex me here, she cries, and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. She's asking spirits to make her cruel, battle-hardened, ruthless, ready to kill because her husband's going to need her support. He's got too much kindness and maybe will be too afraid of the consequences, including his own conscience. And what metaphor does she use? Unsex me. Come to my woman's breasts, she says, and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. My milk for gall. Remember when we made our perfect play and I suggested we could swap the genders and have a very interesting play, a female leader with a conscience and a tough-as-nails spouse who's advising her? That would be interesting today. But Shakespeare had a good line on this, too. Women get pregnant. Women feed babies right from their body. Our society, our world, our civilization, our history, and evolution, we all have mothers. We all know the importance and centrality of motherhood. We associate women with motherhood and motherhood with caring and kindness and selflessness. Well, here's a woman who says, not me. If that's in me, I don't want it there. I want it. I want strength and ambition and power. The first time we see Lady Macbeth, she's alone on the stage. It's astonishing. What an entrance. We're barely into the play, and we've been given one of the greatest villains of all time. She goes straight to work. Macbeth walks in and she says, hello, husband. Congrats on your promotions. Let's talk about the future when you'll be king. That's that's basically it. It's a paraphrase. Straight to the point. The, the letters have transported me beyond this ignorant present, she says, and I feel now the future in the instant. Macbeth says, Duncan comes here tonight. God, this plot moves fast. She says, for how long? And he says he leaves tomorrow. And suddenly we have a couple determined to murder. Tonight, bang, bang, bang. We're still only five scenes into the whole play. And they're ready to roll. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see, she cries. She's in her heightened state again, the one where she's wailing for murderous strength. And we see how diabolical she is. Look like the innocent flower, she says, meaning smile and nod and bow and scrape to the king but be the serpent under it. The serpent, like Satan. Then she says, leave it all to me, Macbeth. Leave it all to me, because you need to look innocent when you're talking to the king. You can't be thinking about the details of murder. You'll blow it. You'll reveal it on your face. Well, she's right to worry. Macbeth has some doubts. Duncan arrives, and he's so good, and ambition is bad, and it could have some repercussions, a boomerang effect. My vaulting ambition, Macbeth says of himself. Again, a perfect word for what he's doing. It's the ambition that leads you to jump over something, makes you take dangerous risks. And again, vaulting is a word that Shakespeare invented just for the occasion. We kind of like Macbeth here. 
We at least see that he's not a monster. And if this is the first time we've seen the play, we don't know yet what he's going to do. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly, he says. He's thinking about murder. Gosh, golly, gee, if we are going to do this thing, we should probably do it fast. Maybe we shouldn't do it, though. He knows the problems. Murder has consequences for the afterlife and for this life, especially when the king is popular. Pity's going to travel through the air, he says, like an innocent newborn baby riding the wind with winged angels on invisible horses. And that wind will be drowned by the tears of people hearing the news. Macbeth has cold feet. He tells Lady Macbeth and she snaps. She goes off on him. What? You said you'd do it. You've changed your mind now? They're talking about murder. <laughs> but she's she's completely resolute. And she appeals to his masculinity. Are you not a man? You were a man when you said you'd kill him. He says, quote, I'm a man, but being a man means doing what's proper. End quote. And she is completely scornful of this. You're not a man at all. You're weak. You're a woman. And she says in this astonishing passage, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn as you have done to this. You won't even kill a king when your destiny is on the line. I'd have killed a baby while I was nursing it. Who's more manly? You, who makes a promise and then gets all squirrely about it, or me, who would see it through? Well, clearly I'm more manly because I would reject the most womanly thing I can think of. Something you men can't even do. I'd kill my own baby while I was nursing it. So man up and kill your king. Macbeth is kind of staggered by her. Who wouldn't be? We learn later he has no kids. So maybe Lady Macbeth had a previous husband, or maybe their kids have died. You wouldn't blame him at that moment from thinking, maybe she's killed them. He says, God, I hope you don't have any girls. Your undaunted metal should only pass into boys. Sort of a throwaway, gendered stereotype of a comment, but I'd like to give it a little more resonance than that. Like, like Macbeth is thinking about all of society and thinking, holy smokes. Imagine what it would be like if women were running around dashing their infants to the ground. It would be like living in some horrible dystopia. Hopefully, this this crazy woman I'm living with is the last of her line. No females are going to inherit whatever sickness is inside her head. The two make a plan to kill the king and frame the servants. Act one ends. What a fast act. What a fast play. A lot has happened with the promise of a lot more to come. No one is going to be moving out of their seats. In Act 2, Macbeth sees the floating dagger, which is another nice touch. Who's putting that before Macbeth, and why? Is it his own vision, or is there a supernatural force leading him toward murder? A muse of murder. Maybe it was the witches. What does he believe it to be? And then... Lady Macbeth arrives again. She says something very interesting. She's still committed to the murder. She's so hopped up on wine, it's given her more courage than ever, she says. But then she says she didn't kill the king. I wonder if Shakespeare thought of this as a problem. If Macbeth is wavering 
And if Lady Macbeth is not, if she's such a perfect villain at this point, why wouldn't she just kill the king? Maybe Shakespeare thought it was a little problem he needed to solve, a potential question in the minds of his audience. Obviously, he wants Macbeth to be the killer because this is the tragedy of Macbeth. But maybe he thought the audiences would wonder, why doesn't that crazy woman kill him? Whatever the reason, he found an absolutely fascinating way to solve that problem. Lady Macbeth says, Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I'd have done it. What? This advocate for murder who tells Macbeth she'd have killed her own infant, suddenly she wavers because, Hey, wow, that guy reminded me of my father and what kind of a monster would kill her own father? Yet she's been telling Macbeth to kill his king, the kind king, the metaphorical father. Maybe she'll tell Macbeth, you know what? I changed my mind. We can't run around killing kings. It'd be like killing a father. Except Macbeth, at that very moment, staggers in carrying bloody daggers. He's already done it. What a moment. Her certainty has been infectious. Macbeth felt it, and maybe we do too. The king must die. It's destiny. And her certainty wavers for a millisecond. Or she says, oh, he looked like my father. And we think, oh, crap, this is wrong. Of course it's wrong. And suddenly Macbeth comes in, having done it. We know it was a mistake, a huge mistake. Even Lady Macbeth is backing away from it. It's a sin. It's immoral. It's a violation of every possible value in our value system. And it's going to end poorly for these two. We already know it. But the moment of wavering, of her wavering, is a key point in the play for another reason, too. The two of them are moving in different directions because she now starts to hesitate, to waver, and Macbeth becomes more resolute. She has trouble with the guilt. She finds it harder to maintain the cover-up. Macbeth has strong enough self-preservation instincts, which self-preservation being a position where you act out of fear as much as ambition— He's more likely to maintain the cover-up than she is. That's where they're headed. But for now, Macbeth is more shaken. The blood on my hands can't be washed off, he says. A little water won't do it. They, they would stain oceans red. Multitudinous seas incarnadine. And Lady Macbeth grabs the daggers and runs back into the room to frame the servants, which Macbeth, in his post-murder stupor, has forgotten to do. And she says, my hands are the same color as yours, but I would shame to wear a heart so white. It's a little bit of a callback to our episode on Javier Marias and his book, A Heart So White, which Mike, I think, has read five times. We've already talked about what happens next in the play, the reaction when the murder is discovered. There are people who know they're in trouble now. Banquo, of course, who realizes that he and his sons are in jeopardy from this new king, who's probably committed murder. Malcolm and Donald Bain get it too. They take off. And now Malcolm is Duncan's son. He's the next in line, and he thinks, oh my God, I'm the true heir. I got this raving maniac murderer who's killing kings. He'll probably kill me too. So those two take off, which makes other people think they might be guilty. At least it allows Macbeth to suggests that. But now the chase is on. When you're a thief, you think you're surrounded by people who are trying to rob you. 
When you kill a king to become a king, you're waiting for people to murder you. Especially if they think, and you know they have reason to think, that you've gotten your throne through murder. Lady Macbeth says, relax, you're the king. These rivals can't live forever. Just have a little patience and enjoy being king. She's changed so much already. Her ambition is complete. Now she wants to enjoy it, but Macbeth's in a different frame of mind. He believes he has to kill all his rivals before they come and get him. He can't rest easy until they're dead. But his mind is not a strong ally here. Because he feels the guilt of what he's done. He has Banquo killed, but Banquo's son, Fleance, escapes. Yet another witness who can turn on him. And then Macbeth sees Banquo's ghost. The world... Nature itself is starting to act strangely. Strange things are happening. Macbeth's in a prison that's closing in those trash compactor walls. Rivals who know the truth can return to get him. His mind is playing tricks on him. He's hired murderers. They could turn on him. Supernatural forces like ghosts are around coming to get him. And look how ready both we and Macbeth are for this ghost, for the ghost of Banquo to be real, since we're, we've already seen witches in this play. We've taken them to be real. Things are closing in on Macbeth. He demands more information from the witches, and they tell him not to worry. There are still three things that would have to happen before he loses his throne, and none of them seem plausible, and then they all start coming true. Are you a man? Lady Macbeth asks him, you seem unmanned by folly. But it's too late. The wheels are coming off, and she herself is about to explode into insanity with her famous sleepwalking scene where she cannot get her hands clean. A little water, Macbeth said before. A little water will wash this off, but no. Here's Judy Dench giving us what has to be one of the most chilling scenes in all of literature, and I've never seen it done better than Dench does it here. You should probably watch the video too to see how fully she inhabits this soliloquy so you can see her eyes. But her voice is good too. Listen to this clip. Listen to the sound she makes as the horror finally plays out across her. It's not a human sound. It's not a human sound. Ah, oh, Judy Ditch is so good. Okay, here she is. Yet, here's a spot. Oh, she speaks. Out. Damn spot out, I say. One, two. Well then, it is time to do it. Hell is murky. By my Lord Fye, a soldier and a feared. What need we fear? Who knows it? When none can call our power to account. Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? The Thane of Five had a wife. Where is she now? What will these hands never be clean? 
out of all with this starting. Go to. Go to. You have known what you should oh. not. She has spoke what she should not. I'm sure of that. Heaven knows what she has known. Here's the smell of the blood. Still! All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. heart is sorely charged. I would not have such a heart in my bosom for the dignity of the whole body. Well, 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 this disease is beyond my practice. Yet I have known those which have walked in their sleep who have died holily in their beds. Wash your hands. Put on your nightgown. Look not so pale. I tell you yet again, Banquo's buried. He cannot come out on his grave. Even so. To bed. There's knocking at the gate. Come, 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 come. What's done cannot be undone. To bed. To bed. To bed. To bed. Will she go to now to bed? Directly. To bed. To bed. To bed. <sighs> Murder is a horrible thing. It has destroyed her. She dies soon after, and Macbeth hardly has time to react. He's so intent on clinging to his own chances of survival, but he does deliver one of the great speeches in Shakespeare, the grief of losing a co-conspirator. What did Lady Macbeth want other than for him to be king? Which he wanted as well. It's like one of those schemes you do with a friend and it doesn't work out and you are now sort of ashamed of your actions. But you weren't alone, which makes you feel good, kind of. But it also makes you feel ashamed because you dragged someone else down too. What were we thinking? Isn't that a difference from when you acted alone? What was I thinking? That's kind of lonely. What were we thinking? How did we get carried away like this? Who's to blame? Here's Ian McKellen as Macbeth, contemplating not so much on Lady Macbeth's life or his life, but on the nature of life itself. Wherefore was that cry? The Queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow. 
and tomorrow. And tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. <sighs> Just doesn't get any better than that. So the walls are moving closer. Macbeth is racing around the chessboard with no options left. The opponent is on the march with superior forces. Nature itself has turned on him now. And the prophecies are coming true, and he's got nowhere to turn and no appeal to make and nothing but his own sin as a foundation for hope. Macduff kills him and returns with his severed head to show the people, and they cheer to be rid of the tyrant Macbeth and to praise the new king. Duncan's son, Malcolm, whose succession to the throne heralds a new age for Scotland, finally rid of this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. <laughs> the phrase, my God, Shakespeare was touched by the gods of writing, this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. Phrases like that just flow from the man's pen. Fiend-like is another word he made up, by the way. It's incredible to think that this person ever walked the planet. <sighs> I feel exhausted and exhilarated. I've seen this play probably 10 times and will hopefully see it 10 more. I'll definitely read it that many times. I see something new each time. This time I saw something fun. It's a very Shakespearean touch. It's easy to miss because it's not one of the huge, famous, obviously amazing passages like the floating dagger or the witches or Banquo's ghost or the sleepwalking scene. It's pretty minor, actually. One of the consequences of a king arising through murder and needing to murder to keep his spot is that no one knows who's loyal to whom. So Malcolm tests Macduff by pretending to be a horrible person, sort of saying, are you sure you say you want me to be king? But what if I tell you that I'm a womanizer and have all of these other bad habits and character traits? This is Malcolm's test for Macduff. And Macduff Laments for Scotland. Oh, poor Scotland. Stuck between that butcher Macbeth and his fiend-like queen on the one hand, and this new guy, the rightful heir, who's confessing how horrible he is. Poor Scotland. And Malcolm says, surprise! I was just kidding. I was testing you, and you passed. I'm not really any of those things. I'll be a good king. Now, for the plot at that point, what's needed is for Macduff to be relieved. Macduff should say, oh, thank God, because I really want to kill Macbeth. He doesn't deserve to be king, and I'm glad to know that you'll be a good king because that's what I'm working for. So I'm glad to hear you're not such a lout because I'm planning to fight Macbeth, risk my life to make you the king. So 
Good thing that you're good. That's a plus, and off we go. That's all that's needed for the plot to move forward. Great. I'm on board. You're a good guy. Let's go get Macbeth and make you king. But Shakespeare's mind doesn't work like that. When he's working at his best, he doesn't just advance the plot. He's not creaky and mechanical and manipulative in ways that might make the audience feel a little out of sorts. Because if the audience doesn't believe the characters, they'll take the plot for what it is, a device by the author to manipulate action and emotions and produce effects in the audience. The seams will be showing. So here's what happens instead. This is very Shakespeare. Macduff is silent. He's silent. When Malcolm tells him, don't worry, I was just testing you. Macduff doesn't say, well, thank God you were just testing me. Let's go. He's silent. So that Malcolm has to stop and say, wait, why are you silent? And Macduff says, such welcome and unwelcome things at once, tis hard to reconcile. That's the moment I hadn't noticed before. I just love it. Not because it's Shakespeare's grandest or most monumental, known as going to win an award or go down in history, because they delivered those lines with the kind of force that Dench and McKellen summoned forth for the more famous soliloquies. But I love the moment because for me, it's what Shakespeare is all about. In addition to the unflinching tragedy, in addition to the astonishing facility with words, he knows that, God damn it, if someone is tested, if someone is tricked, he doesn't just bounce back. The human response is to be a little sullen, a little prickly about it, to say, why did you do that to me? You just made me think Scotland was in a kind of hellish world, trapped between two horrible options. And now you tell me that you were just joking? Okay, fine, I'm on board again. I'm glad I'm fighting for the good guy. I'm on board again, or I'll, I will be on board again, but give me a minute, will you? <laughs> Let me absorb this. Malcolm has a full head of steam. Ha, ah, good news, my friend. I was only testing you. Why are you, si- wait, why are you silent? And Macduff says, just give me a minute. There's no reason to do this. The play doesn't need it, except that it does need it. Because Shakespeare knows the people on the stage and how they would think, and he knows the people in the audience and how they would think. He knows the human heart inside and out and backwards and forwards, whether it's the heart of a murderous king or a fiend-like queen or an avenging soldier or a grave digger or anyone else. This man, this Shakespeare, died 403 years ago, far too long ago, to know any of us. And yet, somehow, he knows us all. That's going to do it for this episode, this Halloween episode of the History of Literature, Macbeth. I've been saving this one, my friends. I sort of wish... I'd made it a two-parter. I had to leave so much out. Maybe we'll revisit it again at a future date. Speaking of the future, how about putting a little love for the podcast in your future, either by telling all your friends or recommending us to your social media contacts or leaving us a review or even just clicking the little five-star thing whenever you get your podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not too proud to beg, my sweet darlings. Ain't too proud to do that. 
And I'm not too proud to tell you how grateful I am for all of your support. Those of you who've signed up at patreon.com slash literature or otherwise supported the show, these little acts of kindness, this milk of human kindness is nourishing indeed. And I hope it's flowing through each and every one of you, both when we're spending time together and when we're not. I'm not ashamed to have a heart so white. Purity of spirit has its place, especially in a world that could use more giving and more grace and more gratitude. So let me close there and say, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.